Welcome to the Physician Associate Podcast. Hello, welcome to this episode of the Physician Associate Podcast. My name is James. Today I'm joined by Irfan Mahmood. Irfan, do you want to introduce yourself? So my name is Irfan Mahmood. I'm an anesthesia associate. I qualified in 2010 at Salford in the Northwest. I kind of fell into the uh, the role. I did a biomedical science degree and then decided to carry on looking for jobs within the NHS, but not in the labs. And I came across then, as it was known, anesthesia practitioner role, and it sounded really great. It had physiology, pharmacology, anatomy, all the things I loved at, at uni. And so it was a kind of natural fit. And so, yeah, that's how I ended up where I am. So obviously, physician associates and anesthesia associates we're often sort of referred to as, I don't know, sort of sister professions. Can you tell me a little bit about what an anaesthesia associate is, how you describe what the role does? So we're non-medical providers of anaesthesia. So anaesthetists are doctors trained in the provision of anaesthesia. And in the UK, before AAs, there, there was there was only anaesthetists who provided anaesthesia services. AAs are now a new member of the team who provide anaesthesia services so that includes all aspects of the, of the anaesthetic so pre-operative assessment the induction using medicines uh, insertion uh, laryngeal mask airways and tubes various uh, lines looking after patients in theatre and waking up at the end taking them through to recovery and making sure that uh, their pain and any nausea and vomiting or any other side effects from anaesthetic are, are well managed and recognised and we work quite closely with a, with a consultant anaesthetist. And there's a, probably quite a similarity between PAs and AAs in a sense. So what's different between AAs and PAs is that we have a defined scope of practice on qualification, which I don't believe uh, PAs have. And then the majority of AAs then go on to consolidate their learning and training and expand their scope of practice depending on what the, what the needs are locally in their hospital. So everyone works slightly differently, but virtually everyone has a, expanded their role since qualification once they qualify okay thank you there are a few similarities aren't there between pas and aas the training as a physician associate we are a two-year postgraduate or master's course for people who have a pre-existing degree in a healthcare science or sort of medical background is it the mm-hmm. same what are the entrance requirements for anesthesia associates so the, the entry requirements, I think, are pretty much uh, the same. So you have to have either a biomedical science degree or that kind of background science degree or a healthcare professional. So more than half of AAs, I think, currently. Um, I mean, it's difficult to know because same as PAs, it's not, there's no statutory register. So it's people dependent on who replies to surveys and censuses and things. But I think more than half of AAs are from a operating department practitioner or nursing background with just under half uh, from a science degree background and so we also undertake a, a two-year postgraduate diploma which some people go on to top up to a, to a full master's so we have at least three days with a certain number of hours but at least three days usually works out to of clinical practice where you're supervised um, directly by a consultant anesthetist so you're getting on the job training by a consultant anesthetist every day you're in work and then you have learning outcomes um, that you have to meet for each, each module with with essentially weekly plan of what you should be covering each week. And then we have MCQs and uh, OSCEs as formal examinations, as well as regular sign-offs by our, our local clinical clinical lead. And then at the end of two years, you you, you should be able to work to the scope of practice and you, and you can call yourself an AA recognised by the Royal College of Anesthetists and then in future, not so long from now, hopefully, by the GMT. And we'll pick up on um, 
regulation because we're sort of being regulated together, aren't we, PAs and AAs mm. with the GMC? Mm-hmm. In terms of training, am I right in thinking that there's only one university that runs AA training in the UK? It has been for several years now, just at University of Birmingham, that's been the, uh, the HGI. It's from September, a second uh, provider, uh, UCL, so University College London. Uh, so they've already recruited, uh, I can't remember the, the exact number now, between six and ten um, trainee AAs. Uh, one of the other differences between AAs and PAs is, is our training. So we don't apply directly to the university uh, for a, to, to become an AA. We have to apply for directly to a trust who advertises usually NHS jobs for a trainee AA. And then the trust employers and enrollers enroll on our behalf um, with the university, with the HEI. So that's, I suppose it's, it's the difference is we're an employee when, when we're trained. Oh, I see. So it's sort of earn and learn apprenticeship kind yeah, of model. Yeah. So it's. I mean, it's got it's got its pros and cons. It. I think it's pros. It's, it's a nice. It's a nice way to be um, to be trained as the as the trainee AA because you're 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 in employment and you're being paid. I think one of the one of the downsides as, as a workforce issue is that it's a significant outlay for the for the employer. So they they have to invest in two years of your of your salary and your tuition fees. So in terms of an investment for the trust, they have to be able to justify that and. And that can be quite quite challenging for, for for many roles. Yeah, for sure. And I suppose growing that at scale, yeah, can be difficult to convince trusts yeah. that it's worthwhile doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once you come out, are you like us on the agenda for change banding in terms of pay? Yes. So we come out on for agenda for change, and there was a job match done several years ago. Now where we went through the job evaluation process, and and it's still I think it's still on the uh, on the internet somewhere. Is it? As a anesthesia practitioner, and it's banded at band seven. And the in terms of banding throughout the UK, it's, it is a little bit variable. Uh, some employers uh, have all their AAs on band seven. Some have all of their AAs at band eight. Uh, quite a few are taking the approach of initially employing at band seven, and with the consolidation of training, learning, and then picking up additional skills and knowledge, and essentially being more more useful practitioners. And then move on to a, to a band eight. A. That makes sense to show progression mm. in the role. Yeah. Are most AAs, as a result of that structure, sort of around certain central points in the UK, or are you spread across quite widely, the four nations, different cities, and rural areas? So there's they are they are quite right widespread. I think less so in rural areas. It seems to be more in the in larger cities, but the more and more seem to be cropping up in the in, in DGH uh, DGHs. So there's quite there's quite a centre of quite a few people in there, quite a few AAs in uh, around in and around London. Uh, I think the biggest concentration is probably around Birmingham, uh, as there's a number of hospitals there that have trained and then have subsequently merged merged into one trust. There's quite a few in, in South Wales, uh, in the northwest we've got quite a few and around Leeds. Scotland have, I think their numbers have been fairly static, but they, they initially trained quite a few and they've just, just restarted uh, training now and, and advertising for, for trainee posts. I think Northern Ireland's probably where we've got, we have the fewest and I'm not aware of uh, ongoing training. We've got, I think there's a handful of AAs there. Right. Okay. And in terms of numbers of AAs in the country, how does that compare against uh, there might be a few thousand physician associates, three or four? Like no, so the, the numbers are significantly different. So best guess is uh, 172 AAs or thereabouts in the workforce based on the last census. 
we've, we think we've trained closer to 200 plus, um, but where those AAs have gone and if they're still in, still in employment is difficult to know because there's no mm-hmm. statutory register. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the things we we, we try to, uh, to to find out. But uh, I think we I think as a as a group we're we're much smaller, and I think that's probably a combination of the training structures, as I mentioned, in terms of of, of pay, in terms of um, training. You're li- an individual hospital is limited to how many AAs they can train at any one time. There's a, there's only a certain number of, of operating theatres. Mm. There will be training anaesthetists that also require training. And when you're when you're initially training, your the kinds of lists uh, that you need access to and, ex- and exposure to are the same. Whether you're whether you're a junior trainee anaesthetist or a, or a trainee AA, so there's a there's a limit to how many you can train at any one time, and and also the fact that AAs uh, only work in and around anaesthesia as opposed to PAs who are working virtually any specialty. Okay. How long has the AA profession been building? Is it similar to the PA profession in that there were a few pilot sites and trials initially? Or So I started in 2007 and I think I was the third cohort of trainees. So I think the, the, the initial cohort um, were in 2004, uh, the pilot group. Okay. Hopefully, I'm, I, don't think, I don't think I'm out by more than a year there. <laughs> about 2004 was the was was the first cohort and they essentially helped create the curriculum so there was there would have been a draft curriculum and then they helped set that up so by the time i started in 2007 there was a finalized curriculum that our education was based on is there a equivalent to the aa profession in other countries was it based on like with pas we're based on a sort of model that works in america and has been established for decades is there something similar that the aas are based on or where did it come so, from so so I, I came across a paper a while ago and which which was the inception of, of the role and it involved a a group a delegation essentially from the royal college and the department of health and other stakeholders and they and they went and visited a, a number of countries where they have non-medical providers of anesthesia so internationally, nurses provide more anesthesia in, in the um, in the developing world than 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 doctors because they just aren't doctors there. So they're often they're known as nurse anesthetists, and so there's an international federation of nurse nurse anesthetists. In in Europe, there's a, a few countries which have it's difficult to say equivalent roles because I don't think they are equivalent, but they have providers of anesthesia in Italy, uh, non medical Italy, Switzerland. Sweden and Denmark, I think, and so those, those some of those sites are visited. But essentially, our role is based on a, a US role, so the anesthesiologist assistant role. There's another role there, again a nursing one, uh, certified registered nurse anesthetist, uh, CRNAs. Uh, they're they're a separate role. Their role and kind of scope of practice is a little bit different. The anesthesiologist assistant role, which which our role is, was essentially based on after looking at the various groups is defined by working in a, in a team model, i.e. a team led by a consultant anesthetist or, or the equivalent as they would have in, the, have in the States. And so that's that's the basis of our role of working on it as a, as a team, as a team working with a consultant anesthetist, delivering care that, that the individual AA is, is competent to deliver. So we've had a, in the, at the University of the Queen Elizabeth Hospital based in Birmingham, they developed quite uh, close links with some anesthesiologist assistant programs in, in the States. I believe Florida, and they've had a, a a few cohorts. Clearly, not during COVID, but before COVID, they had a few cohorts of, of trainee uh, anesthesia anesthesiologist assistants who came on electives uh, for a number of months at a time, just gain experience uh, and and see another, another way of working. So I think Birmingham hosted a few, and uh, South Wales hosted a few, 
and we've actually had um, a couple of uh, UK trained AAs go, go and work in the, in the States, although they're quite different roles and you still have to sit the various exams to be recognised in, in the different countries. There, there, there is a precedence for, uh, for it and we've, and we've had um, a Canadian trained respiratory therapist come to, come to the UK and, and, and work as an AA. So th- there's not many that have done so, but it is something that, that has happened and I expect once we're regulated, it potentially may become uh, more common. Well, that's exciting. It's nice that you have got that opened up. I think the same might yeah. happen for PAs eventually. Yeah, yeah. Once GMC regulation comes. Was the role established as a result of workplace pressures, workforce demands? Was there fewer anaesthetists and there was work to do? Is that why the AAs were established? It seems to be yeah. what most people so say the PAs came about from. So yeah, it was similar to physician assistants as they, as they were then, uh, the creation of the, the role. Uh, it was initially known as an anaesthesia practitioner was was uh, investigated and looked at and created uh, due to a perceived uh, shortfall of the consultant anaesthetist workforce and compared to demand. And that, that shortfall has come to fruition. I think the reality is it's come probably later than initially was expected. So I think when the role was created, the at that, if it didn't match up at that time, particularly with a with a significant drop in the consultant anaesthetist workforce but over the last decade. That that the supply and demand gap has significantly increased, and in the last census by the Royal College of Anaesthetists in two thousand and twenty, there was a, an eight point eight percent difference between the supply and demand for consultant anaesthetists, which has doubled in the space of uh, four or five years. So I think now now that that is starting to bite, and I think on the back of COVID and um, that significant shortfall and increasing waiting lists, uh, interest in in the role and training for the role has, has increased significantly. So in terms of your day to day work, what might you do on a typical day? What would that look like for you as an AA? So I think it's quite variable. Again, it depends on where you work and what kind of work you're undertaking. So I work in a major trauma centre. So most of my work involves urgent care, so the trauma list, uh, the CPOD list, uh, it tends to be the mainstay of, of, of what I do. I do a lot of regional anaesthesia, and recently we've branched out into a, essentially a day case facility. Um, so I think it, it varies quite a bit from trust to trust. A lot of, uh, probably about half of trust work in something called a two-to-one model, where two AAs uh, or an AA and a trainee anaesthetist we work in adjacent theatres with one consultant in East supervising them. And so that, that was one of the original intentions for the role. Was that, that, was, that is how everyone would work. But I think the, re- the reality, it doesn't quite match up with that. And people have found other, other niches and other, other requirements from their employer. So quite a few are carrying out sedation services, vascular access services, uh, regional anesthesia services, where I suppose it is kind of in a, in a two-to-one model, and as well as working one-to-one, but in more complex care, you know patient kind of populations or, or surgeries so it really is quite a quite a mix of what people are people are doing okay excellent uh, one of the biggest selling points as a physician associate is that it, we bring a element of continuity into the team we stay in post we don't rotate like the junior doctors do across specialties and hospitals is that true of aas as well as that you become a point of continuity and i think i think that's definitely true and if I'm honest, I didn't initially see it like that. I didn't actually see it on the ground. But having worked in my, my hospital for nearly 14 years now, including my training, and doing the same kind of list on a regular basis, that kind of historical memory and uh, institutional memory, you can see the value of it. You know how things work. 
the, the, the scrub teams, uh, your theatre teams know you, the surgical team know you. So even if there's a, a change of anaesthetist, whether that's consultant anaesthetist or trainee anaesthetist, you're that continuity of, you know how the system works, you know where the patients are coming from, where they're going to, what, what things have to be done to get, get the process going. So, yeah, so initially I, did, I didn't quite see that advantage that, that people talked about, but as I've done the job longer and longer, the value of, of that kind of memory, institutional memory is, uh, is significant, I think. And in terms of your day-to-day work, obviously you're using anaesthetics, I suppose you're administering medicines, and how do you get around the whole issue around prescribing? Because that's one of the big bugbears as a physician that is a That is a real bugbear. And, and the, the best we've come up with is uh, using a patient-specific directives where a predefined group of medicines is, is determined and signed off by the consultant anaesthetist to say that this, this named AA can give this named patient these medicines um, in the right clinical circumstances. And if I'm perfectly honest, I, I think that's a, a less than ideal solution, but we have a limited number of solutions available to us um, currently as an unregulated profession. And so there is a uh, similar to PAs, there's active discussions for increased access to medicines for AAs. Essentially, without medicines, we can't really do our job. Yeah, of course, it must be even more frustrating for you as an AA yeah. than it is for, for us as PAs. Yeah. How do you think GMC regulation will help the AA? I think different people have different expectations of it. So I think AAs will expect that it's going to have a significant impact on, on their on their working I think the scope of practice will will change with the um, with regulation and, and what what we can do. And I think combine that with increased access to medicines. I think the way people work will change. Uh, with the faculty of AAs within the Royal College of Anaesthetists, they they will help develop that national structure for that role development. What what I've been saying to people recently is I think the dynamics going to change once we're regulated. Instead of being now, where essentially your employer, your department and your supervisor with you will determine what is and is not acceptable practice, what is safe and, and you know, on that, and on that side of things. I think it'll switch. And I think the same applies to PAs of can you as an individual AA or PA justify what, what you are doing? Uh, are you trained and competent and appropriately supervised? And I think that, I think there's a lot of AAs and PAs who probably don't think of it like that. And I think People will need to start thinking differently and what regulation means to them in their day-to-day practice. And I think that's, that's a good thing, uh, looking at that. And then the, the more, what the rest of the things that people will probably understand from regulation is quite generic and applies to all professionals, whether someone's a doctor or a nurse or an AA or a PA, is things like professionalism, keeping maintaining good standards of practice uh, with, with, you know, with good, how, you, how you conduct yourself with patients and colleagues, make sure appropriate documentation is in place, appropriate training. So I think all those kind of generic things will, will come with that and will add value. And, and I think in particular, the area where people probably most struggle is around CPD and continuing continue that professional development. So I think having, being regulated will therefore mean that there's a requirement to do that. And I know there's been, there's been a whole issue with, the, with training recently for, for junior doctors getting into their training posts. But I think that, yeah, you're right. We do need more people in the workforce. We need more anaesthetists, more AAs. 
but I think unfortunately there's also a limit on on training, good quality training. And so if we overnight doubled the number of anaesthetic trainees, they'd, they'd all be competing for the for the same kind of experiences. And yeah. so there's 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 a limit to how many you can put through at any one time. I think I don't know what that limit is, but yeah, there's a limit capacity. I think. And I suppose with COVID having delayed a lot of routine surgeries and the huge backlog pressures now to catch up, it's all hands on deck, really, isn't it? Just whoever can help in whatever capacity. It is, yeah. So I think I think over the next twelve months we'll see significant changes in, in how we how we work and how we deliver that, that elective care, which is really built up. And yeah, I think it's going to be changing work various people work using PAs and AAs differently than they have done already. So I think it'll be an interesting time over the next twelve months, particularly as regulation then comes in. I think it'll focus people's minds of how they want to use the different workforce um, groups that there are. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Evan. Cool. If people want to find out more about Anesthesia Associates, where would you point them to to find out more and to get in touch? So we've got our website. So if you type in Anesthesia Associates, um, or the Association of Anesthesia Associates, then it'll lead you to our website. We've got quite a few resources on there. So we've got videos, um, give people a little introduction to the role. There's various documents, governance documents. I know that's one of the things people often struggle with about what government structures that should they have in place. We've got job descriptions. So there's quite a lot of resources. And then the Royal College of Nieces have got resources on their website. And the college also hold our um, voluntary register um, as a prelude to the uh, statutory register that GMC will hold. So there's lots of resources out there and email contacts. So get in touch if anyone has any questions. Perfect. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. And I hope I'll have you back on in the future to discuss how things have changed. And thanks to you for listening as well. I hope you found that a really interesting conversation. If you've got any ideas for future episodes of the podcast, or you'd like to get in touch with me, I'm on social media at PA Podcast UK. It'd be great to hear from you and get you on the show as well to talk about what you're doing as a physician associate. And I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Physician Associate Podcast.